Welcome to University Eurodollar with Kalinowski Emil. I'm your host, Snyder Jeff. And before you throw your phone or your computer against the wall because you think it's rendering to you backwards, please don't do that. Please don't destroy your phone. In honor of the way that curves are upside down and everything's backwards and central bankers and economists seem to be looking at everything the wrong way, we thought that we'd present our show today exactly in honor of all of those things. It's going to be backwards. Normally what happens on these episodes is that Emil will pick out a piece of mainstream a trash and read it to me just to get my blood pressure up and to make sort of very emotional reactions to it. So because everything is upside down, because everything is backwards, today I'm going to be reading to Emil and I'm really going to try to piss him off too. Now, I don't know if this is actually mainstream economic trash. It might actually be pretty good, but that's why we're going to do this. We're going to get Emil's opinion about what The Economist has to say about South Korea. Now, this was published on March 5th, 2022, so this year, about a month ago. Today is April 14th. And by the way, I'm Jeff. That's Emil. I think I said that backwards, but in case you didn't know who we are, everything's upside down at the moment, so bear with us. So this is called Kindred Soul, and of course, the title is catchy because they spelled soul as in the name of the capital, South Korea. And the subheading is that this could spell enormous trouble. All right, are you ready, Emil? I'm excited, and I just want to tell the audience, I don't have any funny jokes, but this is wonderful for me. What a relaxing position to be in, not to worry about, about hosting the show. And I guess also for the audience, the punchline is going to be that South Korea has rung up a number, a number, all of them, of early warning indicators of banking and financial crisis. You likely don't hear that in your mainstream financial press. And as the, uh, as the Economist article is going to talk about, they're wondering if this is something like what we saw in Japan. So a little bit of economic history. Plus- oh, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Okay, we got to get to So this is Kindred Soul from The Economist, March 5th. In 1989, at the peak of Japan's economic and financial heyday, few dared suggest the country might one day be supplanted as the richest nation in Asia. And as always, Emil, the way this goes is that you... Whenever you feel like you need to jump in, please jump in. Per person, South Korea was not even half as affluent. But then mighty stock and land bubbles popped in Tokyo, kickstarting several lost decades for the land of the rising sun. Meanwhile, South Korea... Hold on right there. Hold on right there. No, hold on right there. I can't. I know. See, that's what you do, Jeff. <laughs> lost decades. Euphemism. Lost decades. It's incredible how the financial media... The press is forbidden from using the word depression. Unbelievable. Can you imagine having a recession that lasts several decades, Jeff? What a euphemism. You mean like the great lost decade? <laughs> it wasn't that the 30s? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't hear that in the great lost decade. Unbelievable euphemism. It always bothers me. It's like saying uh, there's a foreign object in your, in your side when actually it's a harpoon. Okay. There's a foreign object. Go on. Okay. Go on, Meanwhile, South Korea's economy boomed. By 2018, its GDP per person, adjusted for purchasing power, topped Japan. Similarities between the two economies extend beyond converging income levels. Both built their wealth during periods of export-led growth. Now, South Korea's working-age population is shrinking, as Japan's did after the mid-1990s. Most uncanny are echoes between the financial risk which emerged in Japan in the late 1980s and those mounting in South Korea today. They, too, could trap Asia's mightiest tiger in the doldrums for decades. 
Jeff, we often don't talk about Japan in the late 1980s, but I feel like we should, as that maybe was a precursor. We always look to Japan as the leading indicator. What happened for the world, unfortunately, as you say? Can you tell us, tell the audience, what happened in the late 1980s? And later we'll talk about what may have happened in the 1990s and what the mainstream theory is what happened in the 1990s. But just leading up to the bust. Well, just in happened? very brief terms, Japan did what a lot of other countries did, do around the world mm -hmm. or throughout history, which as an export powerhouse uh, engaged in all sorts of comparative advantage, lots of money inflows, lots of financial inflows. And the Bank of Japan, which supposed to be a very careful steward of the yen, actually was not and allowed these credit bubbles. I know people will bring up the Plaza Accord 1985, whatever, but essentially allowed these financial bubbles to proliferate, which is nothing more than bank expansion, monetary expansion internally, which, as we all know, doesn't ever end well. Uh, we were just talking about Michael Pettis in our article, our rebuttal to Zoltan Pozar, and he's of the same mind as you are, Jeff. He also says that this is something we've seen many times before, what Japan experienced. And he also writes that that Plaza Accord was nothing, a big nothing burger, that it's completely an unsophisticated way of determining capital inflows and trade deficits as to whether or not a currency is valued at a certain peg, that it, there are much more sophisticated ways of trying to steal, quote, I'm using that word now, steal demand from other countries and boost your export sector and boost your economy relative to what it could support internally, naturally. And he says currencies, the, forget it. And that's why he was saying when uh, President Trump was uh, negotiating and putting up tariffs and discussing whether or not the currency should be revalued, that that just completely was missing, missing the point. Don't you think, Emil, that that's sort of like the old school, old style thinking? That's like, you know, yeah, it makes sense when you're under a fixed exchange pegs and things like that. But the focus on the value of currency rather than the direction of currency, I think to me seems at least misplaced. He also says that it's the focus on bilateral currencies is mistaken to your point of a global currency system. He says having a trade war or tariff or deal to rebalance your trade deficit with a particular country is temporary because that trade will then go to another country from you know the offending country because they're not going to give up. They want to keep all their people employed. And then that will flow back into the United States. So you need a global policy in order to address your trade deficit, not bilateral ones. What about super expensive houses? Let's talk about that. Super expensive houses have become a major issue in South Korea's tight presidential election, which takes place on March 9th. Obviously, we're a month after that. I don't really know who won, but it's an issue. It's a funny one. It's funny, Jeff. I don't know exactly who won either, but the economists explained it as the least of the most hated <laughs> candidates. So there were two candidates both of whom were despised, as The Economist explains. And I just, it just sort of uh, reminded me of the 2016 election, but I don't remember The Economist at the time writing, yeah, the least despised of the two most despicable candidates won. Yeah. And you know what I'm trying to say, right, Jeff? It's not the, goon, the gander, goose, something. All right, thanks, economists, for being consistent. Go on. Okay, the outgoing government's repeated efforts to rein in the property market through tighter loan-to-value restrictions on mortgage lending and steeper taxes on owners of multiple homes have had little effect. 
low interest rates and an aging population seeking rental income as it nears retirement have proved stronger forces. There is no specific threshold beyond which the value of all land in a country relative to the size of its economy suggests asset prices are unsustainable. Well, there's common sense. But the ratio for South Korea is both high by international standards and relative to the country's recent history. It now runs at five times GDP, up from around four times in 2013. At the peak of Japan's folly, the value of all, all land rose to 5.4 times GDP before collapsing through the 90s. Key point, key paragraph, and we're going to discuss the residential property early warning indicator that the Bank of International Settlements has done for us, that it warns us whether or not something is wrong in a particular country and whether it will lead to a financial crisis. In fact, the BIS has data going back a long time and has done many studies, and they have found that a certain threshold, once it's triggered, there's a 50% chance, you know, at least historically, but they're saying that this is prospective as well, of a banking crisis within three years, once you reach a certain tr threshold. So we'll talk about whether or not- Emil, is there a scalability to that? Is it, does it, if it gets to one threshold, there's a 50% chance. If it gets to a higher threshold, it's a 70, you know what I'm saying? Is there sort of a, is it sort of just a 50-50 kind of a thing? And then, you know, you hang on with your fingers crossed or is there a way to monitor and update? I believe there is a way to monitor and update it. They provide the probabilities both of a false positive and just the actual direct hit. And they provide that in a table in a report that's called Adding to the Family, Early Warning Indicators. So people can, can look this up. But yes, they provide a scale where you can follow it along, but they just, as the general benchmark, they always stick with the 50% in three years for all the early warning indicators. Well, that makes, I mean, 50% is way, way too uncomfortable. Yeah, if I remember, another report wrote uh, something similar. They did a similar study using different measures. And they found that if you pick a random country in any random year, going back to World War II, the chance of a banking crisis is 7%. So just for comparison's sake, yeah. this is quite serious. 7% versus 50% within three years. Especially since we know banking crises are, don't really work out good for the average person. Jeff, that paragraph has some good information in it but also some, some conflicting stuff in there, right? They do say there is no specific threshold be beyond which the value of all land in a country is, is bad news. But then- I was gonna say South Korean yeah, people and firms have been borrowing at a frantic pace in September last year. Oh, wait, but wait, before you go, okay. go on, before I still have something to say, because then they do say, but then they compare it to GDP and compare it to right. Japan's GDP. And that's conflating a little bit because, again, South Korea is different than Japan and there's no specific threshold. So we shouldn't compare South Korea to Japan. We should compare South Korea to itself. And then the threshold that was in Japan might be completely different than, than the one uh, in South Korea. But they do hit on the point about, but the ratio for South Korea is both high in international standards, doesn't matter, and relative to the country's recent history, bingo. That's the key, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just for South Korea, but for worldwide. The BIS has found that don't look at how expensive the property is in Hong Kong relative to Venezuela. That doesn't matter. It should be expensive in Hong Kong or Singapore or wherever. What matters is the relative recent history, long-term trend, as they call it, 10 years at least, 
to where you are right now. And Jeff, would you know it that the BAS very helpfully produces a data set that's about six months behind times and they have provided us data and they have said, all right, where are the real residential property prices today in countries A through Z and compare that then to their trend. Jeff, I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count whether or not South Korea has rung that emergency early warning indicator. I'm going to go way out on a limb here and suggest and then and say that since we're talking about South Korea specifically and that, you know, it's never newsworthy when everybody's operating within normal tolerances, that there's a high probability that, yes, South Korea has probably exceeded that threshold, if probably more than by a little. And interesting, it was just the most recent quarter, the most recently available quarter where they rung it up. So it's just now, six months ago, where they're accelerating. And this article suggests it's only continuing. By the way, for people, if they're interested, other countries that have also run the residential property price uh, early warning indicator, the Czech Republic, Turkey, I guess they've already had their financial crisis. They've had the currency crisis. So it doesn't count. Yeah, so their prediction, Russia, Czech, Luxembourg, Slovakia, New Zealand, Greece, Netherlands, Croatia, Slovenia, Portugal, Hungary, Spain, Poland, Lithuania, Ireland, the Philippines. Okay, you want to go back? Along. South Korea people and firms have been borrowing at a frantic pace in September last year. The country's except September last year, be twenty twenty one. Country's household debt stood at one hundred seven percent of GDP, compared with fifty eight percent in Germany, seventy nine percent in America. Non financial corporate debt runs to one hundred fourteen percent above the average for advanced economies. Now this is important because the article suggests. It recalls 1980s Japan, too, and not in a good way. Richard Koo of Nomura Research Institute warns of a possible balance sheet recession. Before we get there, because that'll be your section, I want to know about the balance sheet recession and whether or not that's what happened in Japan. And so we can keep an eye on it in South Korea. But what they're discussing right here in that paragraph that we just talked about, again, they're, they're bringing it up and they're comparing it to other countries. Like this is what, is what it is in South Korea. And then here's what it is in other countries. Ignore that part. It's again just about what happened in your particular country if we want to be predictive. I mean, it's educational to know, okay, it's above the average for advanced economies. Okay, good. But where is it relative to your recent history? And again, the BIS has something called the credit gap measure, another early warning indicator separate from the residential property price one. And the credit gap here looks just at the private sector. Jeff, that's a key point. Not the public sector. Let's see. There was a book by who? Richard Vig, A Brief History of Doom. I've talked about it, but not in the last six months, I think. He went over the last 200 years of crises, and what he found is that it's private debt that causes the crises. The public debt causes a slowdown in growth. Private debt causes the crises. Cause and effect, right? The public debt comes after the private debt explodes, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so here in this article here, they they say non-financial corporate debt. That's part of the private sector. That's not the bank. The other part that's in the private sector that are not banks is the households. So what? how much debt do the households have? How much debt does the corporate sector have compared to GDP? And then compare that to your recent long-term history. Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Partners, I'll give you three guesses. And again, the first two don't count as to whether South Korea has tripped 
that early warning indicator. I think we think that we're believing that it did. It must have, right? For six quarters now. So this is a 50% chance of financial crisis. And that's up to last year. Is that up to the most recent data, which is six months old? So likely, I mean, it's probably hasn't changed. So we're talking, what, eight quarters? That's substantial. Yeah. The BIS says it doesn't matter if it's changed or not. Once you trip it, the countdown has begun. So the countdown is still extending. Bingo. Sort of like yield curve inversion then, right? Once it happens, it's we've gone too far. For those keeping score at home, other countries that have joined Korea include Canada, Sweden, Turkey, but we've already had, no, yes, Turkey, they've already had their crisis. Norway, Hong Kong, France, Switzerland, also China, Chile, Luxembourg, Argentina, Germany, and Brazil. Maybe we don't want to include Hong Kong or the other financial centers like Switzerland because they're holding on behalf of others debt that doesn't belong to that nation. So, okay, we don't have to. We could exclude them if we wanted to. A deeper investigation needed. All right. Continuing on, Richard Koo. Balance sheet recession? Balance sheet recession. In 2020, the IMF flagged that South Korea was only one accident away from a damaging balance sheet recession. Although lending to subprime borrowers was limited, it noted that about half of South Korea's household credit was either linked to floating interest rates or required large lump sum repayments, meaning it would need to be refinanced at potentially higher interest rates. Higher interest rates. We're going to be talking about the debt service ratio. How much income do you have relative to the interest that you owe on the debt, including the amortization of the principal? Now, the BAS, thankfully, collects that data, beats all the bankers over the head, demands answers, gets them, collates it for us, and we can take a look at the debt service ratio per country to see if, again, relative to its own history and GDP, is it over and above a certain threshold that suggests a financial crisis is likely. And I'm going to give you the results, ladies and gentlemen. But Jeff, balance sheet recession, Richard Koo, do you think he was no. right about what happened in Japan? What is the balance sheet recession anyway? Okay, tell us why. Not even close. Well, balance sheet recession, is, is you know, Emil, is simply where we run up too much debt, whether it's a household or private businesses. They say, we got to cut back until it makes more sense given our levels of income. So the economy falls off into contraction and it has a weak recovery from that contraction because neither households nor businesses are taking on new debt. But eventually, things normalize, consumers, businesses get comfortable with taking on debt again, the balance sheet recession ends and we go back to normal. Obviously, that didn't happen in Japan because here we are on their, I'm sorry, Emil, fourth lost decade. So I don't think it was a balance sheet recession. Again, this is just the private sector, corporations, households, but not banks. We're excluding them. Well, here's the question for you, right? This is the Economist argue, uh, This is the Economist article again. Yes. Has the dreaded accident arrived? South Korea was one of the first major economies to raise interest rates during the pandemic. It has now done so three times. So are, is South Korea, Emil, is South Korea a vision of our future? Uh, well, Jeff, isn't the central bank may have raised rates, <laughs> but I don't know that has to do with market setting rates, right? How dare you? How dare you say such a thing? At the short end, yes. But if I remember correctly, Mr. Russell Napier did an analysis of this and his cocktail napkin, that's my saying, cocktail napkin, he's a professional. So he had a nice 
piece of parchment, which he did this calculation on. And it was more of a five year or seven year average duration of debt for corporate and households, something like that. So if we're talking about short-term debt and the central bank in South Korea raised their rates, okay. But this is more towards that end of the curve where it's the economy deciding what rates should be. Jeff, the five to seven year period, where are we when in that sense of real economy influence versus central bank influence? Well, it's going to be different from every system. So in South Korea, that might be the rate, the spot. In the U.S., it's around the seven year. But your point is, I mean, that's the point that we always okay. try to make. It's not what the Fed does. Just reading through this kind of recalls Emil, doesn't it? The, uh, the middle 2000s in the U.S. Did Alan Greenspan's 17 rate hikes pop the uh, credit bubble? No, because mortgage rates mm. really didn't rise all that much in response because yeah. in the United States, at least, mortgage rates are set by the Treasury yield, not the Federal Reserve. Speaking of Alan Greenspan in the early 2000s, the BIS produced these early warning indicators, at least the residential property price one in 2000, right? They already, Borio, I believe, was one of the authors of, the, of a study. And I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, Jeff, but if this data was available, that a, and it is in the data, you can see it turning red worldwide. You could see it happening, coming from a mile away, not in 2008 in the quarters leading up to it, right? The 12 quarters beforehand, three years beforehand, the early warning indicators were ringing alarm bells. I say that Greenspan saw this and left when he could. That was Alan Greenspan's conundrum, right? Because why wouldn't, given the fact that the housing market, not just in the US, but globally, the credit bubble had gone nuclear, why wouldn't you want to own safe and liquid instruments anticipating they would become very necessary and more valuable in the near-term future. So, Zoltan, there's a reason why people own treasuries that has nothing to do with what the Federal Reserve says. Total debt service ratio, I explained it a little bit earlier. Ladies and gentlemen, behind, you've got three choices, door one, door two, door three, as to whether or not <laughs> South Korea has tripped this early warning indicator as well going a full three for three. I think by now the, the surprise has worn off, right? I mean, I think we know that it's tripped all of them. Three for three. They are three for three, ladies and gentlemen. Three, four, three, and they join a fine list of other countries such as Canada, Sweden, the Czech Republic, Turkey, Norway, Hong Kong, France, Switzerland, Russia, and China. Maybe we can make some exceptions with Switzerland and Hong Kong. It's not their debt they're servicing relative to their economy, maybe. But we can't make that exception for Korea. Continuing on with the story. Okay. The parallel, I assume the parallel means the balance sheet recession parallel or the housing bubble warning parallel has limits. Japan's financial institutions were famously poorly regulated, leaving policymakers constantly surprised by the level of damage done to the financial system. As crisis popped up repeatedly throughout the 1990s, I would argue that's wrong. Policymakers don't understand the system that they claim to be in charge of. South Korea's unusual John C. credit system, through which households borrow to fund lump sum rental payments, makes it difficult to assess how risky household debt truly is. But the scary similarities... Jeff, before we move on, before we move on, before the scary conclusion, they just mentioned households there at the end, and the BIS provides a total economy-wide debt service ratio early warning indicator. And they found that just looking at households, 
is predictive as well. This is our fourth early warning indicator of financial crisis within the next three years, 50-50 coin flip chance, four for four, 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 four. And they joined four other countries, three other countries. The superfecta of awful. South Korea, Canada, Sweden, Norway, household debt to service debt service ratio warning. Not countries that you would expect, right? The Scandinavian, Sweden, Norway, especially Sweden, who has a, much, a reputation of being more uh, conservative, prudent, and things like that. Sweden has rung in three early warning indicators, Jeff. The credit gap, the total debt service ratio, and the household debt service ratio. Same as Norway. This deserves some sort of uh, investigation for whoever's in charge over there. Well, let me ask you, Emil, is that because of the post-COVID environment, the fact that, uh, I mean, you know, places like Sweden, you maybe wouldn't think as much because they didn't restrict their economic activity as much as other places around the world. But how much is there an effect of mismatch between lack of economic growth or lack of economic recovery from 2020 and the appeal and even the subsidization of using debt from households, businesses, Obviously, we know that happened in America. It happened in Europe to a a great extent, too. Are we seeing maybe some of the uh, after effects of those types of intervention imbalances in these early warning indicators? We had these early warning indicators going off before COVID. So we had problems there already pre-existing. COVID made it worse, lowered everyone's GDP. Their GDP hasn't recovered as quickly as possible as potential. Whereas the debt, you can't erase it. It's still there. So the debt burden has grown heavier. If we had done this show when we were looking just at 2020 data, I think you would make a great point. We would say we need more time. Maybe the economy is going to rebound. But this is now data in 2021. So we've rebounded. We're growing optimism. So economic activity is pretty good enough, as good as it's been when this latest data was being reviewed. So yeah, it was bad. It got worse. And I think the comparison still stands, though, as as fair. Okay, but hey, the scary similarities will continue to grow as South Korean politicians, central bankers, and regulators endeavor to engineer a smooth end to the explosion in asset prices. They have the Japanese experience to learn from, but understanding the worst case scenario may prove easier than avoiding it. Well, I've got bad news for the economists because they don't understand the worst case scenario because they didn't bring up the fifth early warning indicator, which is cross-border flows. Uh, We could call that hot money flows or foreign debt. The BIS looked at foreign debt inside of a country and they said, all right, it's okay. You know what's more predictive? Cross-border claims by banks, basically. So if you see an acceleration in money coming into your country relative to your GDP, relative to your trend, recent, you know, 10-year trend or so, yeah, three-year trend, then you may be in trouble. There's too much money coming in for the, relative to the size of your economy, right? Let's say the United States wanted to invest. Go ahead. I'm going to say, explain that a little more so that people understand. Why? Because it sounds like that would be a really good thing, right? If banks are giving you more money, that's how is that bad? It's worldwide money, an entire planet worth of money trying to funnel itself into a small country. And eventually you're just going to run out of good investment opportunities and you're going to start funding things that don't make any sense. We saw that in the Asian financial crisis where we first 1997, 98, whereas 
Russell Napier would tell us it started in 96. At first, it was foreign direct investment into plant, property, equipment, businesses. But then it became hot money flows, and it's just too much for an economy to absorb. Going back to our Zoltan piece, there are only a handful, maybe two countries, maybe one country that can absorb the world's inflows, and that's the United States, maybe the United Kingdom. That's it. So for every other country, if there is a tremendous amount of money coming into your country, it's going to start funding things that are not economic. And then one day that money is going to say, I'm going to get out while the going is good. And the property prices will start falling, defaults, contagion. That's the trigger, right? I mean, when you have the, a high exposure to foreign money and then the money reverses, you are especially susceptible and vulnerable. It's sort of like a very wide bid-ask spread. You can't cover it without a massive price change, which is usually the worst of the worst case, right? Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's five early warning indicators. And Korea, unbelievably, congratulations, has rung in all five. No one else has done that. No one else. Five warnings. And of course, the BIS doesn't say if the probabilities increase or if you do one or the other. They just provide one at a time. Yeah, I guess they should. It should be a graded model, right? If you're five for five, it should change the probability somehow. Well, again, I said, I think before common sense. So let's apply some common sense here and think if you're five for five, that's a significant contribution. You would think, you would think, but they didn't provide that. They just said, if you go one at a time, Korea, five early warning indicators, Canada, four, Sweden, the Czech Republic, Turkey, and Norway, three. Here are the countries with two, Hong Kong, France, Switzerland. Russia, China, Chile, Luxembourg, Argentina, Slovakia, Germany, New Zealand, Brazil. Jeff, there's a list that goes on to countries that have some rung in one warning indicator. I'll give you three guesses. The first two don't count as to whether the United States is on this list of private debt warning indicators. There is no way that the U.S. is on that list because, as we all know, the U.S. is very well run by very competent people, very smart, very technocratic. There's, it's absolutely not possible that there could be anything wrong with the U.S. You will be surprised that you are correct. You are correct. The United States is not on this <laughs> list, not for the reason you stated, but I think it's because the household sector has deleveraged so much since the uh, great financial crisis and because the corporate sector has continued to leverage itself, but at a pace that is not bananas or it's not bananas relative to the United States history. So I guess it could be insane. I guess it is insane how much leverage the corporate sector has put on, but uh, not relative to recent trends. So there you go. So what you're saying is we already had our crisis and we're still dealing with the aftermath from it. Well, I guess, you know, thank God we're in a lost decade situation. Then There you go. You know which countries are generally not on here? Emerging markets. There's a few. There's a few. But emerging markets aren't so much. Uh, perhaps that suggests Absolutely. I think there's a lot of reasons episode. that we could get into about why these are early warning, what's really the details behind them. And that would be relevant, obviously, to the topic of not just global macro conditions, but global money conditions as well. But that's it. We're going to leave it there for today. Again, I'm Snyder Jeff. That's Kalinowski Emil. This has been University Euro Dollar, and things seem to be backwards because we're living in the bizarro world. Thank you for tuning in. Any last words, Mr. Kalinowski? 
Nothing, Jeff. I enjoyed my time on this side of the microphone. <laughs>